You're listening to a message from Canby Foursquare Church in Canby, Oregon. We pray that this message will be an encouragement to you. Visit canbyfoursquare.com to learn more. Yeah, good morning. It's good to be here. Um, and I'm the internship um, director along with Ryan Agley. So um, we, we partner together and it's a great uh, partnership. Well, this last March, we had the opportunity to uh, go to Disneyland and spend a lot of money. And um, with our youngest, our youngest, which is Rebecca and her husband, Irv, and their two small children, and Nehemiah is at the perfect age for Disneyland. So I was so excited. I'm a Disneyland fan, so um, I think I like it more than even Nehemiah. And that's the biggest um, cotton candy money can buy. And so, but go ahead and leave that up there for a minute. We, um, so when we got there, he's a huge Spider-Man fan. He loves the Marvel characters. And so we got to a place where there was the uh, Guardians of the Galaxy. And I didn't know anything about it except that they were, you know, the superheroes. And so I got them um, the fast pass, which is now called the lightning lane, um, into the ride, and I was going to stay with the baby. And so um, I was so excited because he's going to love this so much. And so they get on the ride. They all come out. They looked a little shell-shocked, but um, I said, Nehemiah, how was it? He goes, it was horrible. <laughs> I go, really? And they were all talking about how it dropped, and, you know, it was a really frightening ride, apparently. And so later on in the day, we were standing in line with another family, and um, the father wanted his daughter to go on the ride of the Guardians of the Galaxy. And so he's asking, Ryan, did you, or um, asked Nehemiah, Nehemiah, did you go on the ride, uh, the Galaxy, um, the Guardians of the Galaxy? And he goes, yes, it was horrible. And he goes, oh, do you mean by horrible that it was awesome? He goes, I repeat, it was horrible. So I say that because <laughs> we're going to be in the book of Esther this morning. And I'm going to tell you, there are some things that are horrible in Esther. There, uh, there are things that happen that no one would want to experience. But I'm going to talk to, talk to you about this book. And we're going to go through it, but there's going to be, what? So how do we, what are our personal takeaways from Esther? And then how does it fit? How does it um, work with the gospel story? So we're going to talk about that this morning. So the book of Esther, the author is written by a Jew who was familiar with the Persian culture. And scholars suggest that it could have been Mordecai or Esther, but that that is just not necessarily recorded, but it's through studies. The story also takes place in a four-year time period. So when we read the book of Esther, it's in a four-year time period, and it's in the third year of the king um, Xerxes, who reigned for 20 years over the Babylonian Empire. And so it reads like a short, action-packed novel. And it's not a fairy tale. This is a true historical, you know, passage in the Bible. It's um, short, it's six pages in my Bible, it's six pages, it's ten chapters. You can read it from start to finish in 25 minutes. 
it's really such a fascinating story. Um, a Jewish orphan girl who is elevated to the queen of the Persian Babylonian Empire. That is, that's what fairy tales are made out of. And so this story also has all the elements that you'd want in a miniseries, right? It has extravagance, um, opulent lifestyles, rags to riches, um, intrigue. It has lovers. It has haters. It has murder plots and ultimate revenge. So it's just such an interesting um, story. So let's start by reading the first four verses of Esther, the king's banquet. These events happened in the days of King Xerxes, who reigned over 127 provinces, stretching from India to Ethiopia. At that time, Xerxes ruled his empire from his royal throne at the fortress of Susa. In the third year of his reign, he gave a banquet for all his nobles and officials. He invited all the military officers of Persia and Media, as well as the princes and nobles of the provinces. The celebration lasted 180 days. A tremendous display of opulent wealth of his empire and the pomp and splendor of his majesty. 180 days of partying. It was over the top for sure. And at the same time, Queen Vashi was um, giving a banquet for all the women in the royal palace as well. So on the seventh day, early on in the party, uh, King Xerxes, um, who was probably at that point half drunk because it was, um, what do they call it, all-inclusive drinking there, you know. Um, so he was half drunk and called to show off the queen. Well, she said no. She said, nope, not coming. So King Xerxes, who was easily influenced by those people around him, um, talked to his buddies and said, okay, what do we do? The queen's not coming. I asked her to come, and she said no. And, and so they said, you know what you need to do? You need to get rid of her because if the other wives see that they can say no to their husbands, then we're in a, all in trouble. So he... <laughs> So the king Xerxes, who's fueled by excess of everything that he has and all the things, all the pats on the back, and, and alcohol, fueled by alcohol, he made a major relational decision. He threw out King um, Vashi, the queen is out, and they suggested that they gather all the young, beautiful virgins in the kingdom for the quest for the new queen interesting story. I mean, seriously. So this is where Esther and Mordecai enter the story. This took place about 465 BC. Esther and Mordecai were part of the remnant of Jews who stayed behind, who still lived in Babylon under the Persian rule. Interesting, um, if you want to put it in context, this is about the time that Ezra and um, Nehemiah were taking those uh, from this place back to Jerusalem to rebuild the wall, to reestablish the law. Um, so this is, these are the Jews who are still living there. And in Esther 2, 7, it says this. This man, Mordecai, had a very beautiful and lovely young cousin, Hadassah, who was also called Esther. When her father and mother died, Mordecai adopted her into his family and raised her as his own daughter. So when the decree went out throughout the kingdom for, you know, to have this new pageant to find out who would be the queen, Esther found favor. 
She found favor. She was brought to the palace, and she was given special treatment, a special menu, um, maids, seven maids. She had beauty treatments for a year. It was the ultimate spa, you know, thing happening for her. And so she was chosen to be queen. Mordecai instructed Esther, though, keep your Jewish heritage a secret. They don't want a Jew to be the queen of the Babylonian Empire. And so Mordecai daily would go by the palace and check and see how Esther was doing through different servants and her maid and, and all of these different people who were taking care of things. But Esther or Mordecai was a very attentive um, guardian of Esther. A couple things about Mordecai. He was um, an honorable father figure to Esther, and he was also loyal to the king. One day, Mordecai overheard, because he was always hanging around the palace, um, the guards planning on an assassination, a plot, uh, assassination plot against the king. The information he heard, he passed on to Esther, and Esther told the king and gave credit to Mordecai. The investigation uh, was found to be true, and the guards were hung, and it was duly recorded in the book of the history of King Xerxes' reign. So it was written down what happened, and it was recorded. But no personal acknowledgement was done by the king to Mordecai. That's important to know that. Now, with every kingdom, you have haters, you have power seekers, and you have self-promoters. And this is where Haman enters the picture. Haman is an arrogant, power-hungry narcissist. Mean and cruel. Um, he's the worst. And the worst part about it was that King Xerxes promoted Haman to the second position, the prime minister. So he had a lot of power. And Haman held um, this position in the palace, and he thought, obviously thought a lot of himself, and he expected everyone to bow down to him. But Mordecai refused to bow down to Haman. This infuriated Haman so much so that he wanted Mordecai dead. And so um, when Haman discovered um, that Mordecai was a Jew, he thought, I'm going to even take it further. I have so much hatred towards this man and th this nation. I want the whole um, lot of the Jews killed. I want to kill, slaughter, and annihilate them. And that's exactly what he went to the king to ask for. So, um, you know, and this is nothing new in history. This is a strategic, Satan's strategic strategy to end the redemptive work of God. And so, fueled by hatred, Haman goes to the king, and it says in Esther 3.8, it says this, then Haman approached King Xerxes and said, there is a certain race of people scattered through all the provinces of your empire who keep themselves separate from everyone else. Their laws are different from those of any other people, and they refuse to obey the laws of the king. So is it is not, so it is not in the king's interest to let them live. If it pleases the king, issue a decree that they be destroyed. Again, remember, King Xerxes is highly um, persuaded and influenced. And, and he wrote the letter. He dictated the letter. He sent it out to all the provinces. 
And it says in Esther 3.13, Dispatches were sent by swift messengers into all the provinces of the empire, giving the order that all Jews, young, old, including women and children, must be killed, slaughtered, and annihilated on a single day. Wow. Could you imagine hearing that news? The scriptures say, Then the king and Haman sat down for a drink, and the city, though, fell into confusion. There was great mourning among the Jews. They fasted, they wept, they wailed, they wore, wore sackcloth and ashes. I can't imagine now it's legal. There's a day set that they are going to be slaughtered. Mordecai sends a request for Esther when he hears, obviously, what's happening for help through a palace servant. He sends this message through a servant, and the message said, go before the king, Esther, go before the king, and plead for your people. Now, keep in mind, Esther, he doesn't know that she's a Jew. Esther sends back a message to Mordecai. The whole world knows that if I go to the king and he doesn't hold out his gold scepter, that I'm doomed, doomed to die, whether she's Jew or not. So Mordecai sends back this reply, and I have this in the message. It says, don't think that just because you live in the king's house, you're the one Jew who will get out of this alive. If you persist in saying, staying silent at a time like this, help and deliverance will arrive for the Jews from someplace else. But you and your family will be wiped out. Who knows? Maybe you were made for queens for just such a time as this. Well, Esther comes back with a message, and she says, okay, all right, gather all the Jews, fast for three days, then I'll go to the king, and if I die, I'm willing to die. Three days later, Esther goes before the king, and he holds out his gold scepter, and the king overwhelmingly invites her into his courts, and he even says, Esther, what, what request do you have? I'll give you half of my kingdom. Instead of saying anything, she just says, would you come to a banquet tomorrow? Come to, well, actually, it was the first banquet. So she says, would you and Haman come to a banquet today that I'm going to prepare for you? At that banquet, the king again, when he comes with Haman, says, Esther, what is your request? Because I'll give you half of my kingdom. And her request was, please come with Haman tomorrow for the banquet I'll prepare for you. With this, Haman obviously is so pleased with himself to be invited, so proud and so arrogant. And it says this in Esther 5, 19 through 14. Haman left the palace that day happy, beaming, and then he saw Mordecai sitting at the king's gate, ignoring him, oblivious to him. Haman, Haman was furious with Mordecai, but he held himself in and went on home. He got his friends together with his wife, Zurish, and started bragging about how much money he had, how many sons, all the times the king had honored him, and his promotion to the highest position in the government. On top of all that, Haman continued, Queen Esther invited me to a private dinner she gave for the king, just the three of us, and she invited me to another one tomorrow, but I can't enjoy any of it when I see Mordecai the Jew sitting at the king's gate. His wife, Zurich, and all of his friends said, build a gallows 75 feet high. First thing in the morning, speak with the king. Get him to order Mordecai hanged on it. Then happily go with the king to dinner. 
came in like that, and he had the gallows built. Wow. So that night, the night before the second banquet, the king can't sleep. That night, the king had trouble sleeping. And so he ordered one of his attendants to just get one of the book of records and read it to him, thinking that would help him go to sleep, probably, you know, just monotonous things that happen day to day. But it just so happened that that record um, that was recorded was the record that was recorded about Mordecai saving the king's life. That he, Mordecai, or yeah, Mordecai exposed the plot of assassination. And um, so King Xerxes hears this. And the king asks then his attendant, he says, so has Mordecai ever been recognized? Did, was he honored? I mean, he saved his life. Well, Haman, because of the advice of his wife and friends, is so eager to talk to the king about having Mordecai assassinated and killed on the um, gallows. He goes early in the morning, and you could imagine, I mean, it had to be early, early, early in the morning. He couldn't wait probably till the sun came up to get, his, get Mordecai killed. And so the king sees Haman in the outer court, who was making his way to the king to ask him to impel Mordecai from the gallows. But the king had already decided, I need to find out how I can honor Mordecai. And so he says, the first person I see, I'm going to ask, what should I do? You know, what, how should we honor him? And so he says, hey, Haman, what should I do to honor a man who truly pleases me? In Esther 6.6, 6, it says, Haman thought to himself, whom would the king wish to honor more than me? So Haman has a great idea. He says, put the royal robe on him, put him on a royal horse, make sure the horse has the king's emblem on him, and then parade him through the town saying, this is what happens to the man the king wishes to honor. Well, the king goes, excellent idea. I want you to do all that you said you were going to do to Mordecai. And so Haman's like, oh my gosh, you know, what happened? So Haman put the robe on Mordecai, paraded him through town on the royal horse with the emblem, shouting, this is what happens to those the king wishes to honor. This story is incredible, and horrible things are happening. So he went home dejected and completely humi humiliated. There's a key verse here, though. In 613, it says, when Haman told his wife, Zurich and all his friends what had happened, his wise advisors and his wife said, since Mordecai, the man who has humiliated you, is of Jewish birth. Now, this is key. Because he's of Jewish birth, you will never succeed in your plans against him. It will be fatal to continue opposing him. This is key. He, she was saying, you can't stand against the Jews. I mean, they understood the covenant promises given to the Jews, even though they weren't living under any of the, you know, Moses' covenant or law or anything like that. She was saying, you will fall, not because of Mordecai, but because there is an unseen unnamed 
providential power behind the scenes working for the Jews. They recognized it. They didn't say it. Mordecai never said it. Haman never said it. Zeresh never said it. But it was the covenant promise. There was something they knew. That's key because God keeps his promises. About that time, knock, knock, knock on the door. The palace officials come to Haman's door and, and say it's time to, for the king's second banquet. So Esther um, has the second banquet, and Esther in 7, 3 through 8 says this. Es Queen Esther replied, if you have found favor with the king, and if it pleases the king to grant my request, I ask that my life and the lives of my people be spared. For my people and I have been sold to those who would kill, slaughter, and annihilate us. If we had merely been sold as slaves, I, would remain, I could remain quiet, for that would be too trivial a matter to warrant disturbing the king. Who would do such a thing? The king exerts demanded. Who would be so presumptuous as to touch you? Esther replied, this wicked Haman. He is our adversary and our enemy. Haman grew pale with fright before the king and queen. Then the king jumped to his feet in a rage and went out into the palace garden. Haman, however, stayed behind to plead for his life with Queen Esther, for he knew that the king intended to kill him. In despair, he fell on the couch where Queen Esther was reclining just as the king was returning from the palace gardens. The king exclaimed, Will he even assault the queen right here in the palace before my eyes? And as soon as the king spoke, his attendant covered Haman's face, signaling his doom. So Haman is impaled on the very gallows he commissioned for Mordecai, and Mordecai is promoted to second in line of the king. And the king then gives another decree, because the first decree that went out that the Jews could be killed couldn't be revoked, but he, so he sent out another decree that every Jew could defend the, his family and his property. So in Esther 9.22, it says this, Mordecai, um, Mordecai is telling the Jews this, he told them to celebrate because on these days when fasting, feasting and gladness and by giving gifts of food to each other and presents to the poor, this day they would commemorate a time when the Jews gained relief from their enemies, when their sorrow was turned into gladness and their mourning into joy. The Jews were able to overpower and, and take back and not um, be threatened by this first decree. Now, it's interesting in the book of Esther, many of you know this, that God is never, the name of God is never mentioned, not one time in the book of Esther. No reference even to prayer or to faith. They do talk about fasting, but they don't talk about prayer. The law of Moses is never mentioned. In the book of Esther, what we see is two things. We see how God is sovereign, and we see how he is providential. He's sovereign. What God wants, God does. And he, the providence of God is how he makes it happen. And we see this throughout the book of Esther. There will be times that you will not be able to trace God, that you will just have to trust God. There are a few times in my life, a few times in my life, where I've seen dramatic moves of God in real time. 
but most of the time. It's thousands of little shifts, so slight, that don't actually register at that moment. But as you look back, you see, oh, God was moving. God was moving. The most devastating spiritual crisis isn't when we wonder why God isn't doing something. It's when we become utterly convinced that he doesn't care. We serve a God who cares. And he is providential, but he's also sovereign. He does it the way that's best for us. Here are some personal takeaways from the book of Esther. In the book of Esther, the first one is God is God whether we see him or not. God is active even when we can't see his activity. Just because we can't discern or detect what he's doing doesn't mean he isn't working. Uh, Can you say amen to that? Because you have experienced that. I know I've experienced it. There's times it's like, God, you've got to do something. We fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. Since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. 2 Corinthians 4.18. A couple of days ago, um, many of you know that I have a sister who lost her husband very suddenly, very unexpectedly. We were all shocked, so sad, and we're still grieving. And I called her, and I, how are you doing today? She lives in Idaho, and um, she said, I am having such a hard day today. I, mornings are the hardest. We get up, we, you know, it's only been a month. We get up, we have coffee together, we laugh, we do our devotions together. So mornings are so hard, and I'm having the worst mornings. She said, I, I hate to admit it, but I was, I'm, I'm mad at God. I said, that's okay. She said, I went through my house, and I was saying, God, you better show up. God, you better show up. And she went on and told me kind of how her morning went. And when I had that moment, I asked her, I said, so did he? Did he show up? She goes, yeah, he showed up. What may feel like a lack of intervention is not a sign of his lack of affection. This I call to mind, and therefore I have hope because the Lord's great love, we are not Because of his great love, we are not consumed, for his compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Lamentations 3, 21 through 23. God loves us too much to answer prayers at any other time than the right time. And any other way than the right way. Second takeaway, timing is everything. Use restraint. And this is... I'm preaching to myself right now. Not everything we want to say needs to be said, even when we really want to say it. David said this in Psalm 39, so we have good company. He said, to my, I said to myself, I will watch what I do and not sin in what I say. I will hold my tongue when the ungodly are around me. But as I stood there in silence, not even speaking of good things, the turmoil in, within me grew worse. The more I thought about it, the hotter I got, igniting a fire of words. That's in Psalm 39. That's in the Bible. <laughs> when Esther heard the king's attention, uh, had the king's attention, Haman was present at the first banquet. Keep in mind, he was present at the first banquet, but she used restraint. For whatever reason, 
<laughs> she knew that she was supposed to stay silent. She didn't let it all out. I can't imagine. She had to be like that, what David said, it, hot, igniting words, you know, fire words. But she waited. She held her tongue. And what she did in reality is she gave God room to move. Because it was in that time that the king, coincidentally, couldn't sleep. And the records were read that Mordecai saved his life. Third takeaway, when, we face, when we're faced with cultural calamities, resist fear. Every person in all of history has been placed in that time. We've been placed in this time. It's not a mistake. In this era, our children and our grandchildren are placed in this time because of God's sovereign and providential plan. He knew Daniel could handle the lions. He knew David had the best shot for the giants. He knew Esther could handle the king and Haman. God is not scratching his head wondering what is going to happen with this mess of a world. Our children, our grandchildren are strategically placed in this time for God's plan. And I know it seems like an upside down world, but we are in this place for such a time as this. So how is the book of Esther the gospel story? The book is written in that the first five chapters are the calamities. The first five chapters are, it was horrible. <laughs> Haman plots to destroy the Jews. The king sent out the decree to slaughter and annihilate all the Jews, and the city falls into confusion. There is great mourning, weeping, wailing. People are laying in sackcloth and ashes, including Mordecai. And the lowest point of the story is in chapter 5. It doesn't seem to get any worse, could get any worse. Mordecai is to be crucified on the gallows. Then we see the great reversal. The king can't sleep. And everything horrible is reversed. Mordecai is honored, and now he's wearing a royal robe. Haman is dejected and completely humiliated and is hung on the very gallows he set up. A new degree, decree is sent out that the Jews could defend themselves, and the city celebrates. It says in verse 17, every province and city, where, wherever the king's decree arrived, the Jews rejoiced and had a great celebration this is interesting. Keep in mind, what did Mordecai say to Esther at the beginning when she went into the palace? Don't tell anyone that you're a Jew. Now, the great reversal says in 17, and many of the people of the land became Jews themselves. The great reversal, the gospel story. Mordecai and Esther came up with a way. They came up with a way to rescue the people. They were instruments that God used to rescue his people. Jesus is the way. That's the great reversal. Jesus is the way. He rescues us. He took on all of the punishment, all of the sin, all of the guilt for all of his people. As believers in Jesus Christ, we are by grace and mercy of God. We, and by grace and mercy of God, we experience the great reversal 
every day, many times a day, because every time we start going in the wrong direction, we can ask for that great reversal in our life. The darkest day in Christian history was when Jesus was nailed on the cross. His followers didn't think it could get any worse. The earth even felt the devastation of the Son of God dying. The earth shook. The sky turned dark. And then the great reversal began. He descended into hell and set the prisoners free. Ephesians 4.8 says he led a captivity captive. He, went, he has rescued us, saved from death and hell. Our lives are redeemed by Jesus Christ giving us his life. Amen. Amen. Psalm 30, 11 and 12 says, You have turned for me my mourning into dancing. You have loosened my sackcloth and clothed me in gladness that my glory may sing your praises and not be silent. Oh, Lord, my God, I give thanks to you forever. The gospel story is all about the great reversal. We were dead to trespasses and sin. John 3, 16, 17 says, For this is how God loved the world. He gave his one and only son so that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. God sent his son into the world not to judge the world, but to save the world through him. The whole world, everyone, it's for everyone, the great reversal. The last thing I want to point out about this story as we close this morning, in chapter 9, verse 1, it says this. It says, this one little phrase, it says, but quite the opposite happened. 9-1 says, on March 7th, which was the day that the decree went out to have the uh, Jews slaughtered, the two decrees of the king were put into effect. On that day, the enemies of the Jews had hoped to overpower them, but quite the opposite happened. It was the Jews who overpowered their enemies. I think we are very well equipped with um, living and speaking of doom and despair. But I'm challenging you, as I'm challenging myself, to be people of hope and people of promise. Because what we see with our eyes, <laughs> we can trust God, but quite the opposite happened when we put our trust in Jesus. Isaiah 118 says that our sins are like scarlet and I will make them as white as snow. What was lost is found. We, talk, we see that in Luke. All the things that seem to just be lost are then found. Quite the opposite happened. For this son of mine was dead and has now returned to life. He was lost but now he's found. So the party began. Mordecai and Esther were advocates. They were advocates for the Jews. Jesus is a more complete advocate. Someone who intercedes for us and has accomplished our rescue. We were made, we were under the curse of death, but we have one who made a way. The great reversal. Many of you, um, I know I've been there many, many times where I needed that great reversal in my life. I prayed, wept, 
you know, beg God. <laughs> and I look back and I go, oh, God was faithful. God was faithful. And there's still things I'm waiting for. But God is faithful. So this morning as we close, there'll, there'll be people up front and, um, and have, have prayer. prayer. Prayer changes things. Share what you need to be, you know, what God is doing in your life. There's great reversals that you need. So would you stand with me and as we close this morning and as the prayer teams come forward, um, if you could make your way up front. Um, I'm so thankful. I'm so thankful for these Old Testament stories that, that we get to read and see and experience um, how God was so providential an unseen God working behind the scenes. And that's really, you know, what we experience. We don't see him, but we know he's working on our behalf. So let me pray. Father, thank you so much. Thank you for this story. Thank you for your faithfulness. Thank you for the, your covenant promises to the Jewish people. Thank you, Father. We honor you. We pray um, just blessing um, today on families and individuals who need to see that great reversal in their life. So, Father, we believe that. We stand on promises of yours. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening. Please let us know if you have questions or would like us to pray with you. You can contact the church office most weekdays at 503-266-4444 and anytime through canbyfoursquare.com.